Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. When I looked into this guy's eyes, that was not a human being behind there. What I saw behind there made me understand why people believe in demons and things like that. Check out the huge selection of Strange Planet merchandise in my online shop. Go to strangeplanet.ca and click on Shop in the menu or find the link in the episode notes for this podcast. At my Strange Planet shop, you'll find unique men's, women's, unisex t-shirts and athletic shirts, leggings, tote bags, mugs, neck gaiters, and stickers and more. All emblazoned with amazing artwork designed exclusively for my Strange Planet shop by artist-illustrator Rick Forgus. If you're a fan of Strange Planet, why not show it off? Go to strangeplanet.ca and click on shop or go to the episode notes for this podcast and click on the link. It's a strange planet. Dress for it. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serres. Pursuing the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from his studio beneath the stairs, here's Richard Serrett. Hey, welcome to your Wednesday. Just a quick programming note, I'll be sitting in for George Norrie this coming Friday. June the 18th on Coast to Coast AM, and then hosting again on Saturday, June the 19th. As always, go to coasttocoastam.com for more information and to find an affiliate near you that carries this wonderful late-night talk radio program. All right, on this episode, we're going to talk about the cheats, the charlatans, the liars, the neglectful parents, abusive teachers, two-faced politicians, and their psychopathic control grid tyrannical bosses and colleagues from hell we've all encountered, including the lying lovers who use us and then lose us in an instant. Thomas Sheridan is a renowned artist, author, musician, public speaker, independent researcher. His illustrations have appeared on the cover of newsstand magazines, books, and websites worldwide. He's best known for being the author of the book Puzzling People, The Labyrinth of the Psychopath. The book was well-received, becoming an underground success, and has made Thomas's entire body of work reach a much larger audience. Hey, Thomas, welcome. How are you? Oh, I'm great, Richard. Very nice to talk to you. Thanks for having me. How prevalent are psychopaths in society? Well... The numbers are still very small. In regular society, I'm talking about pure psychopaths now, ones who are who are born that way and have a very different brain functioning than the rest of us, it's probably around 1%. If you go to the power structures up towards the top in business, politics, mass media, you'd be talking five four or five percent maybe as high as six percent in certain things like banking and things like that but the thing is that unfortunately even though those numbers are small because there's a higher percentage of them within the controlled structure within the power system they have essentially infected is the term that i use the the sort of like the the the, the nature of mankind and the reality of our world and created this what i call the the the, the psychopathic control grid, which is sem- essentially a world created in their image that gives them, uh, you know, it gives them an easier ride to the top because 
ruthlessness, uh, lack of compassion, viciousness are seen as valuable attributes in terms of uh, getting to the top. And it also makes the rest of us who are decent people, who have compassion, who would never stab, you know, others in the back ruthlessly as a matter of fun even. That's Many of them don't even function on that level. We would never do it. So that guarantees that we never move up the control structure. So although the numbers of psychopaths in the world and in positions of power is not particularly high, unfortunately they have created a nightmare in which the ones of us who are not like that are trying to exist. So they may only be 1%, but they tend to rise to the very top, as you say, so they can do the most damage. Do you differentiate between, let's say, a serial killer, like a Charlie Manson or members of his family, for example, or a son of Sam? Do you differentiate between these types of individuals that prey, that are part of the criminal element, that prey on people, as opposed to, let's say, the psychopath who's walking around on Wall Street in an Armani suit uh, while not murdering people is, is uh, as you say, you know, uh, uh, stepping on people, all over people on his way to the top. No, I don't differentiate, other than I probably would feel safer with the latter if I was immediately next to them, but the reality is Psychopaths don't normally kill because it, they don't want to get caught, not because they have, you know, moral or decency breaks. They don't. They just don't want to get caught. Now, that movie, American Psycho with Christian Bale, yes. was a, a very, very, very accurate portrayal of a psychopath in business. Very, very accurate. The whole lack of personality structure, you know, the scene where he's talking about the music he likes. He, he, ta- he doesn't talk about someone who has a passion for music. No. He talks about it as if he's read, he read reviews in a music magazine. They're actors. That's, They're actors. Yeah, that's yeah. very true. Well, there's no, there's no internal personality structure. That's why, you know, even the first major book on it, the uh, the mask of sanity by Herbie Collectly be pointed out that there was no personality internal structure. You're basically dealing with a nothing, a, a hollow vacuum that has on top of it a a persona, and the persona is the social mask it uses to prey. But there's no difference really because when I when I was working on Wall Street, I used to be a graphic designer for many years. Well, not for many. I'd say about, about seven about seven or eight years on Wall Street. I and, and working in communications, I dealt closely with people that were very much like that. And it was only through reading books on serial killers, in particular books that profiled the likes of uh, David Berkowitz, The Son of Sam, and Ted Bundy, that I came to realize, and so also you know, famous vicious gangsters, that I came to realize that these guys were exactly the same. In fact, there was very little on non-violent psychopaths at that time. It wasn't until about around, you know, later towards 2000 and stuff like that, that uh, Robert Hare's Without Conscience came out. But before that, was nothing really. And uh, no, I don't differentiate. They're, they should be seen as dangerous uh, in different ways. But there's, if they could kill you and get away with it, the ones that don't kill you and get away with it would just do it and they wouldn't care. It's only the fear of being caught and the consequences of going to prison that stops them. Would we be able to say then, I mean this is speculation, but would, would we be able to say that someone like a Berkowitz, uh, had he not resorted to murder, you put that same individual uh, on Wall Street or let's say in Washington, you know, uh, in, the, in the power structure uh, or the system the, inside the beltway. Yeah. 
and, and, and if he had a, a sort of a, a motivation in, in, in politics, that he would have succeeded in those arenas? Oh, absolutely he would have. No doubt about it. Look at the, the Bush, uh, you know, cabinet from when he was in power in the early 2000s. And you look how some of those people like Cheney and the rest of them, uh, Wolfowitz, behaved and talked. It, they, they were unapologetic in there, and they still are. And even Tony Blair in their their nature and what they did. You know, they're still boasting about how, you know, things like waterboarding and torture was, was a great thing. There was this powerful kind of sadomasochistic S&M element to that particular Bush cabinet. Even uh, Gore Vidal pointed that out in one of his later books. And it's true. And that's, that's, they, they were turned on by the violence of being unrestricted and doing what the hell they wanted. And yes, I, I don't think there's a difference. Now, Berkowitz is an interesting case. We could go, you know, into all other places in that particular case. I believe that Berkowitz was also heavily involved in a cult. And the cult ultimate, all these cults ultimately go back to the intelligence services. They're used for social engineering and other kind of purposes. But yeah, there's no difference. You were to put him in that suit, stick him inside any major government or, you know, boardroom of any top corporation in the world, and he would not be seen as deranged or insane or even odd compared to many of the people in the room that were, where they're calling the shots. Uh, definition. Uh, what's the difference between a sociopath and a psychopath? There really isn't any. It's semantics. There's, it's an interesting history about how the two terms came about. Originally, the uh, the term commonly used was psychopath. That had been around in the context we're using it today from about the 1900 on. Uh, earlier terms were, tem- terms were things such as moral imbecile and, you know, you know it, that kind of thing. Now, then, then what happened was when Alfred Hitchcock made the movie Psycho, he did... Di- he really did not betray a psychopath with uh, Norman Bates. Norman Bates was really psychotic. You see, a psychopath is not psychotic. They know exactly what they're doing. They're not, you know, they don't suffer from a disease that makes them do it. They, they know exactly what they're doing. So he kind of ruined the term psychopath when he made that film. And then clinical psychologists and other criminal psychologists started to use the term sociopath. But if you look at the, the, the two terms, they're, there's, you know, term for term or, ident- you know, trait and marker for marker down the list. They're all the same. And so it was just, they're just interchangeable terms. Later on, it, it's funny, when I started uh, making videos about this back in 2008, and I, I wrote Puzzling People around was it 2009, 2010, I was using the term psychopath at a time no one else was, really. And then the term psychopath seems to have come back into popular usage again, which is a good thing because I think it's a much more kind of frightening term when you hear the term psychopath compared to sociopath. Sociopath has been kind of joked down. You'll hear like if people are not psycho- sociopaths saying stupidly, oh, I know, I'm such a sociopath, that kind of thing. But uh, there's really no difference. It's really just semantics and uh, trends within clinical psychology that but they're basically the same thing. What, what are some of the more recognizable uh, traits of a, of a psychopath? You've sort of hinted, you know, there is no inner personality. Yeah. Uh, there's no sort of moral compass. But uh, continue on with the list. Well, let me explain that. Let me explain the, the no personality one more 
closely. They'll have no, they'll have personas when they move from relationship to relationship. They, they, they have generally have short-term relationships. They would never have a marriage or a, anything like that that would last a very long time or be in the same job or the same career or the same interest for a long time. They'll move very, very, very quickly from one thing to the next. And, uh, they will invent a new persona. So one year they could be a hippie, uh, you know, into kind of new age things and stuff like that. And then they get sick of the person they're living with and they, they target a new person. And then the, that new person might be, I don't know, a white nationalist or something. And they'll completely switch the whole other direction and become like a pretend that they're not a white nationalist or racist or something like that to impress that person. It's just... It's just, it's almost comical when you do see how they switch and how they change personas. But that's a common one. They're just targeting. It's, it's like, a, it's like a, a predator changing its, its, you know, its camouflage in the wild in order to hunt more effectively. That's the way it should be seen. Right, right. Yeah, that's, that lack of compassion is another one. They, 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 it, when they do tend to, to, like if they want, if they're trying to show compassion, they will often o- o- overdo it. They will, uh, they will, put on a show at a funeral screaming howling and, and that kind of thing very uh, very just trying to get attention to, to prove how compassionate they are but they don't, wouldn't have genuine compassion if they if they saw someone they didn't know or had no use for drop dead in the street they would just step over them like they didn't exist uh, in a very cold way like they wouldn't care and they would actually be sh- surprised and shocked why other people are are bending down to help this person who had a heart attack in the street that they wouldn't get that they wouldn't understand why people were were helping this person it's just to them it's just be you know you know tough uh, who cares that would be one they, they there's, there's there's various traits and we, we can't go around uh you know constantly uh looking for people and thinking he's a psychopath or she's a psychopath because nine, nine time, 99 times out of 100 we're dealing with a regular jerk you know but yeah another one to look for would be uh, they don't really have a past that's a very interesting one I, that always comes up and over and over again they don't have a, a past hmm. how could that such. be? how could that be? Because there's, they never existed to begin with. It's the strangest thing. In my second book, Defeat the Demons, I write up about a, a, a very good survey that was done in, in, in prisons in Canada of, of killers who were serving life sentences and hardcore criminals like serial rapists. And they were, the ones who were psychopathic were identified and moved away from the others. And they would, they would have questionnaires and they would say things to them like, uh, okay, such and such, you're, you're in here for, for being a rapist. And the, the psychopath would say, oh, I'm not a rapist. What do you mean not a rapist? You were found guilty of raping 10 women. Oh, I was a rapist then, but I'm not a rapist now. Implying that this, the previous personality, they have a very strange understanding of time in the brain. And they do not think the, the present version of them now is responsible for their crimes in the past because they're not doing it anymore. Therefore, you can have a politician, a psychopathic politician, who can declare an illegal war right. which leads to the death of a million politicians and then nowadays can be a run an interfaith foundation for peace and cooperation would not a hint of irony of of how absurd they <laughs> I think are. we know who you're talking about. <laughs> I think we all do. Yes. And that, we notice that that's a trait you notice a lot of politicians. When they get caught, they suddenly convert to Christianity and things like that. I mean, very common that we see that. But when you that's say uh, they, they have no past, you, I mean, there is a paper trail. There are documents. You're saying they simply, they have no concept of a past. 
Yeah, they live like animals. It's in the moment. Yeah, right. it's very strange. But but you you'll notice this because you'll find things in their. Pa- you, you, you say like you said, there's a paper trail, right? You might meet one, and uh, you know you might marry one. You know, that, that's not, let's let's not forget they're all true society, not just at the top. And uh, I don't know, something goes wrong. He, he, after a few months, he cleans out your bank account, and you know he, he, he's gone. And he's told you before you married him. Uh, well, I did. I did twenty years in the army, and uh, when I left the services, uh, I collected an early pension. I was, you know, and then I, I came back to work. I opened this business, whatever. And then the person might start looking into the past and looking through that paper trail and find out that he had three or four or five marriages that he never told her about. You know, that kind of a thing. Right, right. And had spent time in prison, but he'll be so convincing of his backstory. They're tremendous uh, liars and deceivers. And uh, this is why they make tre- fantastic cult leaders because what happens is most, all cult leaders are all psychopaths because what they do is they, they find the insecurities. This is, one that, this is one to watch out for. They will find the missing ghosts in your soul. If you had no father when you were growing up, they will become the father figure. If you had no mother when you're growing up, they will become or they will, they will give you a mother figure. If you were any kind of trauma, loss, or a, a, an inability to fit in in your life, they will fill in all these ghosts in your soul in, that, in order to win your trust and hold you and pin you down. Are they, uh, are, are they, are they above average intelligence? And no, most of them are actually quite stupid. What they are is devious. See, we have to we have to understand. There's a huge difference between intelligence, wisdom, and deviousness. Deviousness is just the ability to learn what you need to target an individual, but that's not born out of the need for knowledge or a quest of information and intelligence. It's just purely a pathological drive to to use another person it's it's pure deviousness and not in any way are they intelligent in fact when you get to spend time at one of them you find out often how absurdly ridiculous many of them are and yet uh they 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 rise to the top that old adage of nice guys finishing last is true because the game the world seems to be rigged in their favor how did that happen well, this brings us to the most common, the most, sorry, the most powerful trait of all, and this is one we should watch out for in our lives, with not only the ones at the top, but one who maybe wanted to try and get into our lives, start a business with us or anything like that, or have a relationship. They, they indulge in something that's called gaslighting. Now, what gaslighting is, it's, it's literally when a psychopath take control, takes control of you, takes control of your company, takes control of your country, and then changes reality. It changes reality in the terms of it will give you conflicting information uh, and contradictory uh, information that causes a type of dissociation in your own brain where you don't know if black is white or white is black, if up is down, down is up, left is right, right is left, and eventually you give up and in order to try and get any kind of normality and stability, you acquiesce to the, the to the the demands and the gaslighting of the the psychopath. Sounds it, like something right out of Goebbels' propaganda playbook. Oh yeah, well, double and also George Orwell's 1984 double speak is a classic example of of, of gaslighting. It's it's it's, a, it's an old clinical 
psychology psychology term that comes from that's based on a movie called Gaslighting, which is t- tells the story of a woman who's actually targeted by a psychopath, and he turns down the gaslighting and tells that the room is just as bright as it was before, even though she's in near darkness, and she believes it because she thinks she's going crazy. And yet, yes, Goebbels was the master of that, and you know, and also George Orwell warned us about it in 1984 because Doublespeak was a classic example of that. The the delivery of two completely contradictory ideas into your brain at the same time. You just don't know what to do, so you just say, look, tell me what to believe in and I'll do it. Cognitive dissonance. Yeah, well, well, it creates cognitive dissonance in yourself, really. Yeah. Really does it in yourself, yeah. You mentioned that you worked on Wall Street for six or seven years. Was this how you first encountered a psychopath and then became sort of fascinated by it and started to study it, or, or where did that happen for you? Well, uh, as a little boy in Ireland, I was growing up when the troubles here, what they called the troubles here, were going on in Northern Ireland. Even though I grew up in Southern Ireland, there was a, a bomb, a car bomb exploded nearby when I was 10 years old and it killed a load of people. And uh, it, it just was, uh, I just couldn't understand what would drive somebody to do that. I just couldn't get it into my head, you know, like in a kind of a naive childlike way, how someone could put a car bomb on the street uh, and blow people, innocent people up. And uh, I think that was probably this, a kind of a moment in my life where I stepped into consciousness, where, you know, it's sort of like suddenly I was aware that the world was a very different and a very bigger place than what a child might experience in, otherwise in the normal circumstances. And so it was probably just from that wanting to know why people did things like that, why wars existed, why, you know, those kinds of things went on. And uh, I just didn't understand how, if the world was run by the most intelligent and the most uh, clever and the most, you know, democratic people, as they constantly told us, well, why was the world such an absolute, you know, in, you know insane asylum? And I, there was things along the way, you know, even before I started reading books on serial killers that gave me clues. I, I, one film was The One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Ah, yes. And I remember thinking that Nurse Ratched, that she ran that, uh, that, that ward. All I want Very to do is good. watch the damn World Series. <laughs> yeah. Listen, yeah, i got to take a time out here. Let me take a time out, Thomas. We'll come back and we'll continue to discuss psychopaths. America, we are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity. And the American dream starts with purpose. By honoring your career calling, you impact your family, your friends, and your community. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. I can't stop talking about the pomegranate super tea from my friends at Get the Tea. They actually changed the name. It used to be known as Formula 13 pomegranate cleansing tea, but this gentle cleansing tea now contains a new stronger formula. All I know is it still tastes great, it's still refreshing, and it still provides me with energy and a sense of well-being. This new blend of tea contains some of the same ingredients as those that are in the Life Change teas, but with added natural pomegranate flavor and stevia. 
to give it a natural, slightly sweetened taste. One pouch of tea contains eight tea bags, enough to last for one month. I brew two gallons at a time and then it steeps in cold water. Into the fridge it goes and that's enough to last for the week. I start my day every day with a 16-ounce cool refreshing glass of this amazing herbal, non-GMO, caffeine-free tea. It provides a daily gentle cleanse that rids my body of any intruders. A healthy gut is the key to a healthy body. So come on board and find out for yourself. The Super Tea also comes in peppermint. These teas are not available in any store. Use the code UNLIMITED and all your orders ship for free. Get your tea from GetTheTea.com. If there's one thing money can't buy, it's sanity. (laughs) Conspiracy Unlimited. With Richard Serrett. We're back with uh, Thomas Sheridan, and uh, we are talking about a psychopaths. You were talking about One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest just before the break, and, and Nurse Ratchet, uh, uh, and of course the, the great uh, portrayal of um, was it Randall McMurphy by uh, Jack Nicholson. And um, yeah, I, she certainly seems to fit the, the mold of a psychopath, someone who enjoyed the suffering of others, uh, who yep. reveled in her authority and her power. Um, where, where else? Yes, yes. Where else do we typically find uh, psychopaths thriving? In what situations? Well, the uni- uh, University College London about two years ago embarked on a research uh, test survey, and they tested people in different professions for psychopathic traits, and they isolated the psychopaths within the different professions, and they came up with an actual checklist. People can go to my YouTube channel, Thomas Sheridan Art, and there's a video there where I talk down the list. And uh, not surprisingly, there was there was like things like politicians and lawyers, and I don't mean that they say all lawyers are, and that, at the very top of it. But other ones there that came out were quite surprising was surgeons. Surgeons often scored very high at the psychopathic level. Really? People in, oh yeah, because the the well the the, the rationale they gave behind it was. They would be psychopaths. Now, the ones who are capable of being educated or are bluffing their way through educated would be drawn to something like that. It's a high glamour job. It you know pays a lot of money. It's a it's a risk taking kind of power trip, and it also in some levels, if you're operating on somebody like somebody's wife or daughter or children or husband, uh, and you you know you you kind of have to detach yourself from the fact that this is a human being. Uh, it's, it, you have to like literally you see it as an object while it's on the operating table, and so psychopaths are very good at that because they don't see any anyone as having any real value other than an, an object, and so they would they would be drawn to that, and also it pays very well. It's a gla- it's a glamorous kind of job, it, you know. It attracts women, power, and sports cars, and that kind of thing. So that's that scored right up there, and. Uh, Journalist, uh, mainstream journalist was very, very high. Wow. <laughs> uh, yeah. But when you look at uh, what propaganda we have in the mainstream media, is that is it really such a surprise, you know? But they, they were very, very much up there on the list, as was a religious, per- like a, a, a religious person on a kind of a, a special mani- messianic quest. So like someone who probably runs a mega church and has 10,000 people is raking a ton of money and they all love him or like a TV preacher and, 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 and a, you know, a new age cult leader who runs a, a comet debt cult 
who says you have to do what I do or the end of the world is coming soon and they, you know, and you must follow my word and my books and the messages that I give you from the Space Brothers and they live, you know, you can always tell those types because they don't live in a small apartment somewhere. Right, they right. live in a, a large mansion, you know, a, you know, a large, you know, palatial home in the countryside surrounded by an army of enablers because they're scooping up large amount of, m- m- amount of money from sure. their, gullible, yeah, they- their gullible followers. I want to find out, you know, what makes a psychopath? Uh, are, are they are they born this way? Is there a? I mean, you've differentiated them, uh, you know, from let's say uh, someone who is psychotic, uh, um, you know, someone who may have some underlying, you know, mental condition. Uh, so, how is a psychopath made? Where do they come from? Yeah, the, the, a pure psychopath is born that way. They're like that from the moment they came out of their mother's womb. They their parents will often notice as young children that they were cold and different and uh, they're very manipulative, not only of other children, but also as of adults. They become sexually active very, very early because they realize that sexuality is something that they can uh, use to to get what they want in life or to blackmail people. Like for a young female psychopath, she'd start having sex at very early ages, often with older men, and then say things like, if you don't give me $1,000, I'm going to go to the police and say you molested me. This kind of thing. It's, this, is like the, this will happen very, very early on. They will have, uh, they'll be the kind of kid that gave everyone the creeps at first, but they become manipulative and they also would be the ones who would be the ferocious bullies at, uh, in high school and things like that. Now, their brains are very, very different. They have the same brain structure. They, all the, you know, the partitions and the, the, the neural pathways are all identical to what we use and the rest of us. But if you put them on an fMRI machine, which is a brain scan machine, and you, you present them with certain triggers, such as things like violent images or thing, and so on, and violent movies, they'll show no, bra- no change in brain activity where a normal person, part, you know, the frontal cortex of the brain and the limbic regions is just where things like compassion exist and creativity, creativity too, you'll find that they're dormant with a psychopath. They're not damaged, they're not broken or anything like that. They simply don't need them. It's a horses for courses analogy. They only need the, the lower brain stems of their brains, you know, the, the primitive part of the reptilian brain. And that's all they're interested in. Everything else is mimicry. So they're very different in how they use their brains. Very, very different. In fact, so different that Dr. Robert Hare of the University of British Columbia, who's the world's foremost expert on psychopaths and has studied them for nearly a quarter of a century, uh, calls them intraspecies predator and often uses terms like they're aliens and, and so on. And this is, you're, not, you're talking about a hardcore academic. Wow. And he talks about them in those terms. Is he being literal when, he's, when, he, when he uses words like uh, alien? No, I, well, he's using it as an, alleg- an, you know, an allegory, but and at some levels, when I read some of his documents, it's almost like you can get the impression that he's biting his lip to holding back what he really wants to say because he's in academia. But yeah, I mean, I, I have, I, I, I just don't know what they are myself. But I know what's in there. Like, I interviewed two of them for the book, Defeat the Demons, and one of them I did on Skype, and the other one I did in a restaurant here in Ireland. And I never want to ever be near one of these guys ever again. Because when I looked into that, this, this guy's eyes, there was no human, that was not a human being behind there. Because he was to- he knew, we were, I was dealing with him on a one-to-one basis. I knew what he was because he admitted to me because he, he, he told me about it. And I, I basically bribed him to give me an interview. And uh, I, that was not a human being behind there. What I, what I saw behind there 
made me understand why people believe in demons and things like that, because that was closer to what I was witnessing than a human being. Um, well, uh, I mean, let's let's probe that area a little bit. I mean, I don't I don't know uh, if you are a spiritual person, uh, but do you hold that out as a possibility that uh, you know the Bible tells us supposedly the world is is ruled by by Satan, and here we have perfect examples of you know the the psychopaths that are running this planet. Uh, do you hold that out as, as at least a as a possibility worthy of consideration? Well, let me tell you this, Richard. When I started looking at this, I wasn't a hardcore atheist, but I was i was basically a, an atheist slash agnostic, not closed-minded, but I didn't want anything to do with religion or anything or, you know, anything like that. After, in the, in, after, say, six years of intensive study into this and also my other work into the uh, into serial killers and also my work into the occult aspects of national socialism, and how that was used to to to, to control the entire nation. I'm, I'm no longer like that. I actually do believe that there are other forms and other entities that do exist in that crack between day and night that our ancestors called the jinn in the Islamic world or the div, right. that they called the you know the the the, the watiko in the in the other traditions that they called the in the Celtic tradition the fairies were actually often described in that way, and what most of our ancestors called demons or demonically you know possessed individuals. I'm now much more inclined to believe that something like that is a very real possibility because things have happened to me that look dealing with this subject that were definitely outside the bounds of what we would call you know rationality could you share uh, one of those with me well uh, an example was a psychic attacks uh, like there was one I, like i've suffered tremendous what they call psychic attacks when dealing in this uh, this subject uh, particularly after my name started to become known it wasn't that i was like having anxieties over becoming you know well known as uh, as an author within this scene I, I you know it was wasn't like anything like that it was like it, it it was a sense of something some kind of malicious force trying to literally scoop out my life in fact one time i was talking to a bunch of friends in an apartment in England one afternoon while I was doing a speaking tour there and I was talking about this uh, the the idea of the jinn the the islamic idea of this 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 deem this sort of like demonic other race that lives outside our perception that infects uh, human consciousness and causes them to do you know pathological things and I was talking about various fairies in the in the celtic archetype that are similar and uh, while I was saying this uh, and something happened uh, I, I felt like I was going to die I felt like that my life was ending right there and then and uh, I had to stand up and grab the, the apartment building was an all converted uh, mill and it had these long metal columns that went from the basement up to the top floor holding all the different floors of the old factory up and I had to physically ho I hold on to the column because I, t I felt like I felt like my life energy was draining out of my shoes, and by holding onto the column, uh, it, it, it actually helped me like gain a sense of magnetism or electricity back in my body that actually I, I was losing rapidly, 
and just by chance, one of the people there was a like was a shim, a person that like training in shamanic healing, and immediately they said you're being attacked by uh, some kind of non-human entity that has a great hatred of you, and these things like this have happened. No, I've actually say. Uh, and other things as well, like strange synchronicities. When I was, when I was, uh, when I was working on my last book, Valpurgis Night, about the occult aspects of, of National Socialism. Right. I was. I usually because I'm an artist. I usually start out my books with uh, a sketch. Now these sketches and doodles help me formulate the how I'll approach a particular topic or chapter. And I started to draw this 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 creature. It was like a. I don't know. It was like a grey alien meets the Jolly Roger skull and crossbones symbol. And I suddenly felt again this sense of like my life force was draining out of my shoes again. And I had to go lie down for a few hours. And I didn't go near my studio for a few days. And I was going online and I started to look at the book again. And because my book Valpurgis Night really begins in 1919 in Germany, a very pivotal year. I typed in the year 1919 German movies because I'm, I think cinema is a great way to explore uh, not contemporary and past history because it really gives us kind of an oracle into the human condition. And the first thing that popped up was a poster for a movie called Nerven, which was about this psychic disintegration of Germans in 1919 ah. following the First World War. And that creature, this demon, was on the poster. Oh, and my. And I'd oh never seen before. My. Yeah. I, you know, the movie I thought you were going to mention was Nesferatu, but... Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. Well, that, that would, the vampire is a tremendous allegory for a psychopath. So it drains your energy, it sure. plays with your mind, and it can't, you know, it, it always seems to rise from the dead in a new form to target someone else. How do we, how do we fight back, or do we just get out of the way, Thomas? Well, Mike... My maxim has always been no contact ever again. If you, you know, and that's not just a psychopathic person. That could be a very toxic or dangerous person in your life. Just get the hell away from them. Just run. And have nothing to do with them ever, ever again because there will be no happy ending there. It's not going to work out. They're constantly going to prey on you and play on your mind. That's the best thing. But we mentioned one flew over the cuckoo's nest there, and you mentioned Randall McMurphy. Well, they don't, because if there's no internal personality structure and they don't have a soul as such, they're useless at things like humor and satire. They don't, and humor and satire is a great way to get at them, just like Randall McMurphy did in that film. He was the jester. The jester was the only one in court who could mock the king. That's why I also do stand-up comedy and I do satirist, satirist stuff, because that's a great way of actually defending against it. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, that's a great way. And also the other character, the Indian, the Indian, the, the chief in that film, yes. he represented the native soul, the native spirit. Uh, psychopaths are almost non-existent within native cultures because they're spotted at a very, very early age and driven out of the tribe. In Western society, we don't spot them. And that scene within the film... Uh, one flew over the cuckoo's nest where Randall McMurphy exchanges a piece of juicy fruit gum with the chief and the chief goes juicy fruit and he, he realizes then that he, he wasn't uh, like a deaf mute he was actually deliberately keeping his mouth shut and was smarter than anyone and that was a, that's a beautiful moment in that movie it's almost like an alchemical moment where you have the, 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 the that stick of gum became like the philosopher's stone and then the two of them then had the power to take down you know Nurse Ratchet's psychopathic empire within that ward so yeah there's the two ways of, there's the three ways of dealing with it one get away from them defending your, your, your psyche against them 
humour, satire and laughing at them is a great way. And then finally, going into our native soul and looking for the the, the, the depths of our culture and see how our and, and learn to be more like our ancestors and creativity is a great way to do that exploring yourself artistically once you have that you have a firewall around your consciousness they cannot get into it and more importantly it gives you that space that sort of like that, that parentheses that allows you to think and, and you know get around their games and machinations Thomas, uh, I really appreciate you spending some time with us. I know it's very early uh, over there in Ireland, and I've really enjoyed this conversation. I hope we can do it again sometime. Oh, it's a pleasure. Anytime, sir. A new Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com. Blow your mind. That is all for now. Oh, and remember to share and give a five-star review because we have huge egos and need love. We're like cats. We need... We need constant petting. 